The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. OMF was founded by Hudson Taylor many years ago. It was known as China Inland Mission for a number of years. And uh, it's always amazing to me. It's been quite an exposure for me. I spent 15 years on that board. Uh, Last meeting I'll participate in. I'm off that board permanently now. But, you know, it has always encouraged me, stretched me. Uh, It's been a delight to uh, be with the colleagues on that board, leaders of the evangelical church. I I felt like a fish out of water in many ways, uh, pastoring a church in a small town. Uh, But it's been amazing. One of the things that, uh, you know, you're stretched all the time. We bring in someone to give a report of what God is doing in the world. And uh, this meeting was a guy from uh, Europe who came in. He was in the States for a while, and he heads up a ministry we call Diaspora. Diaspora means a dispersion, and it's specifically a ministry to Chinese around the world who've been dispersed from China. Uh, I I didn't know this, but right now there are about 1.2 million Chinese living in sub-Sahara Africa. So think about that for a second. Sub-Sahara Africa, southern part of Africa, below the Sahara Desert, 1.2 million Chinese people. Well, that's turned into an opportunity for ministry to Chinese. Oftentimes, these are leaders who go back to China and be involved in various leadership roles within there. Many of them are scholars at universities who will go back to their homeland to lead. And uh, so he was taking us through, and he said, it's amazing. Within the last three years, God has established two Chinese churches in Nairobi, Kenya. And so Nairobi, Kenya, two Chinese churches, and then he showed us a picture of two dear saints. They are African Kenyans who were in language school to study Mandarin Chinese so they could minister to the Chinese who are in Nairobi, Kenya. Wrap your head around that one. (laughs) Kenyan women studying Mandarin China so they can minister to displaced people or scholars, whoever it might be, in Nairobi who will eventually go back to China with the gospel. Our God's a big God, isn't he? I mean, who would ever think that? Who would ever think that? You met the Tuckers a few weeks ago. Tuckers are headed to Madrid, Spain. They're headed to Madrid, Spain. There they're going to minister to Moroccan Muslims who are living in Madrid as workers. Who would have thought that? It's a way for us to reach the world in so many ways. So great opportunities for the gospel to go forth in an age of technology, in an age of globalism, globalization, as uh, people move and come. Speaking of that, uh, I have the privilege this afternoon to go and represent TBC in Belyasurkov, Ukraine. We celebrate 20 years of relationship with our sister church there. If you were with us last week, we talked about that. Uh, 20 years ago, we adopted the sister church. It's been an ongoing relationship. We are uh, been blessed by it in many ways. We've had Pavel, the pastor of our sister church here many times, as well as other folks. So we go to celebrate. Well, one of the things we decide what we can do as a gift for them to celebrate this. They have taken us very seriously. And uh, I didn't decide to go until three weeks ago when they were asking if I could please come. So uh, we'd like to bring $20,000 gift, $20,000 for the 20 years we've been there. We announced this last week. You generously gave three quarters of that last week. So we need only about $5,000 more, and we'll deliver that as a gift to our sister church from Temple Bible Church. So uh, make your checks out, TBC Memo Ukraine, if you desire to give to that uh, opportunity. And we're going to try and Skype in next week. I think it'll be this hour. There's a seven-hour time delay. And uh, so you can see a part of that celebration if all the technology works out. So uh, we're looking forward to celebrating with them. Thank you for the opportunity to go. Lord willing, uh, I go through D.C. uh, like midnight tonight. And as you know, there's a storm coming. And so appreciate prayers just for that journey to connect. I need to hook up with folks in Munich so we can travel in together. So 
anyway, quite an excursion and looking forward to God's goodness. In fact, I need my luggage to get here. Uh, I came in from Denver last night. The only pair of shoes I had here, not my luggage, has holes in them everywhere. So uh, I'm either gone to Dillard's or my luggage is coming in, one or the other, after this service. So uh, God's been good to our body and to our sister church. So let's pray for them, pray for this morning's message. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you have worked uh, in this relationship over the years. Thank you for our brothers and sisters who so very seriously take this relationship. We pray we'd be a blessing to them as they are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're ready in our 12th message from Prophets and Kings. We're looking at the interface of Old Testament kings with Old Testament prophets. And as they spoke into their lives this morning, we look at a guy named Manasseh. And uh, we've entitled this message Grace, and hopefully you'll see why at the end. 2 Kings chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Think about that for a second. Any 12-year-olds out there? Any 12-year-olds out there? Raise your hand. Yeah? I'm glad you're not king and queen, I can tell you that. Uh, Not that we don't love you, we do love you, but uh, he's 12 years old, he becomes king, he reigned for 55 years. The the first 11 years of his reign was a co-regency with his father Hezekiah, the godly king Hezekiah, who we studied last week. For the first 11 years they overlapped when we look at the chronology of this, and then he reigned on his own. What kind of king was he? He had a godly father, a father who walked after God. If you were with us last week, Hezekiah is the guy who opened the temple after it was closed. He's the guy that got rid of all the idols. He's the guy that purged the nation of everything that turned its face away from God. And we titled last week's message, Revival, because under the godly king Hezekiah, there was revival. So what kind of king was his son Manasseh? Verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed. Because of the sons of Israel. Verse 9. They did not listen and Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Under Hezekiah, the nation was headed in the right direction. Under his son Manasseh, they were gone the wrong way. They were gone the wrong way. You ever go the wrong way? Ever feel like you're headed the wrong way? I googled up going the wrong way videos. It's amazing what came up. Two of my favorite videos came up, or I, one I didn't know about. One is, uh, these are actually football videos, so you know why I enjoy them. These are two guys that went the wrong way. I want you to notice two things in these videos. I want you to notice what happens to these guys at the end when other people come to them. I want you to notice that. And then I want you to notice uh, their feelings of uh, we did something really wrong here. First is a guy named Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall was a defensive tackle, Hall of Fame tackle for the Purple People Leaders. Who knows who that was? Minnesota Vikings. Uh, you're going to see what Jim Marshall did. The next video takes place this year, actually, Kent State, Towson State. You're going to see a guy who uh, returns a fumble. Watch this. Myra straight back to pass. Throws, completes it to Kilmer up at the 30-yard line. Kilmer driving for the first down, loses the football. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. And he's running it into the end zone the wrong way. Thinks he scored a touchdown. He scored a safety. As he picked up that fumble, he ran about 60 yards the wrong way. Trying to tell him, go back. Go back. <laughs> he said, no, I tell you, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. What a happy fellow he was. Now for, from a first-half fumble, 
Snap is high. This ball knuckled. Bounding down. Wait a minute. He's wait a minute. He's running the You're wrong going the way. Wrong way. Holy moly. How often do you see that? How often do you see that? <laughs> Towson should not have tackled him and let him go into the end zone. It would have been a safety. It appeared to have just grazed Derek Joseph, the return man, making it a live ball. Right. Linebacker Andre Parker then gets confused. There, it hits Joseph. It's a fumble. It's a free ball. Andre Parker has it, and then he's wrong way, Parker. For 58 yards the wrong way. Joseph's yelling at Peter, which is what punt returners yell in order to get everyone away from the ball, and then the ball hits him. And then Andre Parker, the sophomore linebacker for Kent State, runs the entire, <laughs> runs 58 yards the wrong direction. And if the Towson kids would have understood it, they should have let him go into the end zone. What, what's amazing is those guys tackled him. They just let him go. They've got a safety. And what's amazing is his guys were blocking for him. <laughs> I mean, you look at those videos, you couldn't help but laugh, can you? Hey, that's what the nation of Israel felt like under Manasseh. His father had come in, brought reform and revival. He becomes king, and the nation's headed the wrong way. Headed the wrong way. And, and when those guys recognized they were headed the wrong way, there was a dose of reality for both of them, wasn't there? I love the response at the end. Jim Marshall, Hall of Famer, just stands there stunned. The poor guy, everybody in his team's over there just laughing at him and laughing with him. In Israel, when Manasseh became king and reigned for these 55 years, it was a wreck. They were headed the wrong way. I want you to picture a courtroom scene with me. I want you to picture a courtroom scene. It's a courtroom unlike any courtroom we have ever entered before. The bailiff cries out, it's time for the defendant to rise. He rises, and as he does, he gets up slowly because he has the weight of his sins and the weight of his crimes upon his shoulders. His legs are shackles, his hands are cuffed, his beard is scraggly, his hair is matted, his eyes are darkened from lack of sleep. And as he stands up, the judge looks at him and says, Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, you are charged with the following crimes against the Lord your God and against his people. And he stands there for a second, and the weight of his sin weighs upon him. Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, how do you plead? And his lips begin to quiver, and his head begins to bob as he sobs. His voice is barely audible. Guilty. Guilty, Your Honor. Guilty, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Because Manasseh doesn't stand before an ordinary judge. He stands before the living God. There's no need for the courtroom to go into recess. There's no need for deliberation. There's no need for consultation in the judge's chambers. Because the one who stands at judge, as judge, sits as judge, has the right to rule immediately. But before we get there, and before we see a twist at the end of this particular courtroom scene that will shame a Grisham novel, I want you to see what Manasseh did to get to this point. Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, here are the crimes that you've committed. 
The first crime, Manasseh, is you, re, you have rebuilt altars for the worship of idols. Manasseh, you have rebuilt the pagan altars. If you look at verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, it says in verse 3, he rebuilt. Verse 4, he built. Verse 5, he built altars. And we would say that's great if it was altars to God, but these are altars to pagan gods. In verse 4, you built altars in the house of the Lord. Verse 5, you built altars for the host of heaven. In verse 3, you rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, your father, had destroyed. You also built the Asherah. Hezekiah, you rebuilt the Asherah pole, that, that Canaanite fertility goddess. It was a Canaanite fertility goddess, Manasseh, that people bowed to so that their fields would be fertile and their wombs would be fertile. Your father Hezekiah, Manasseh, destroyed these things and somehow you rebuilt them, you recast them, you made sure that they were available for people to worship. You built altars for all of these idols, Manasseh. You're guilty. You're guilty of this crime of turning people away from me, says the living God. Your father, Hezekiah, removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. But Manasseh, you did the opposite. You built those. Not only that, Manasseh, but you reintroduced child sacrifice to the nation. Manasseh, your father had cleared all of Israel of Molech and the idols to Molech, the, the, the God who was worshipped by having children sacrifice on them. But you did the dastardly thing. You rebuilt that idol. In fact, as we look at the scriptures, we see that Molech was an interesting beast. It says that he sacrificed his own sons in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spirits. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Manasseh, you rebuilt this. You rebuilt the idol Molech. That idol that was worshipped by the Canaanites, that idol that had the body of a human and the head of an ox. You rebuilt it according to Second Chronicles 33, Manasseh, and the valley of Ben-Hemon. The valley just outside the gates of Jerusalem. You set up this massive idol. You placed a fire pit under it so that that idol could be heated up. And when it was heated up, there would be the chanting of the people and the beating of drums. And that took place so that when babies were cast into the belly of the idol or placed on the hands of the idol, their screams would be drowned out by the chanting and the drumming. Manasseh, you're guilty. How could you? And you're the king of my people. And so Manasseh, you are guilty, first of all, of rebuilding altars for the worship of idols. You are guilty for reintroducing child sacrifice. But not only that, Manasseh, you are guilty for defiling the temple. In Second Kings chapter 21, it says in verse 7, he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord. Not only did you rebuild altars for the worship of idols and reintroduce child sacrifice, but you defiled the very temple where I live, Manasseh. You brought into the temple, the temple where I am worshipped by your people. You, you brought in the Asherah, the, this goddess of fertility. You placed it not outside of Jerusalem, not even within Jerusalem, but in the very temple where the people come to worship. It would have been better, Manasseh, to close the doors of the temple like Ahaz, your forefather, did, rather than to keep the doors open and bring in this idol to be worshipped. How could you? You are guilty of the fiery pit you will be cast into, Manasseh. How could you do this? You deserve the hell that you will experience for defiling the holiest place of God. 
Not only that, but you practiced divination and you practiced omens and, and you brought about spiritus and you brought in the occult. Whereas your father, Hezekiah, had brought the prophet Isaiah into the palace to consult with and to receive counsel from, what you have done is you have invited demons into the palace and the temple itself. And rather than worshiping me, you turn to the cultic practices. And rather than turning to me and, and all that I can do, you turn to a supernatural on the other end. On the other side, you turn to darkness. And for 55 years, you've led the nation astray, Manasseh. You're guilty. You are guilty. You're guilty of rebuilding altars and reintroducing child sacrifice and defiling the temple and defying me by bringing demons into the palace and the temple. And not only that, you have murdered the innocent. You've murdered the innocent in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16. It says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Manasseh, the gutters of Israel are filled with the blood of the innocent saints. Manasseh, you've offered human sacrifices. You have brought the innocent, those who would not bow their knee before your false idols, those who would not cast their children upon the idol of Molech. You have murdered those who have stood up to you, stood against you, and turned towards God. You've taken the prophets and the people, and you have not only ignored them, but you've killed them. Manasseh, if you've not done enough already, You murdered brave men and women who chose not to bow to false gods. Manasseh, your father Hezekiah begged Jehovah to have his life extended. We're sorry that he did. You see, if he was 12 years old when he became king, you remember his father Hezekiah was about to die. And Hezekiah prayed that his life would be extended. And God extended Hezekiah's life for 15 years. Manasseh, if God had not extended your father's life, you would not even be here. But because of God's grace to your father, you're here. And you're robbing my people and robbing me of my glory. Manasseh, what do you have to say for yourself? You're guilty. You're guilty. God in his grace sent prophets to speak to Manasseh. God in his grace brought those who would share with Manasseh. But in 2 Kings, it says he did not listen to them. In 2 Chronicles, it says they spoke, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. In 2 Kings 18, it says in verse 9, they did not listen and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than all of the nations there. God graciously graciously sent the prophets We're not sure exactly which prophets, but he sent them to bring a message of repentance to Manasseh, but he would not listen. Manasseh, because you would not listen, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Because of your crimes against my people and your crimes against me and the sin that you brought about, judgment is coming to you, Manasseh, just as it comes to anyone who turns their back on me. Manasseh, judgment's going to come in two ways. First of all, Judah, your country, your nation, the one that you lead, you're going to be ripped from the throne and Judah will be exiled. In fact, the scriptures say in 2 Kings 21:14, I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of my enemies. Manasseh, because of you, finally the last straw has come down and we are going to rip the kingdom out of your hands. But not only that, Manasseh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read a section where he is captured. 
If you look at Second Chronicles 33, the passage you have bookmarked, you go to verse 11, it says there, it says that the king of Assyria came and he captured Manasseh. It says the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against him and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains, and took him to Babylon. Hooks were often used to be placed through the, through the chin and a person would be dragged. He, he was chained, he would be dragged, and all of a sudden we recognize that the torture is being tortured. We recognize the murderer is off to be murdered. We recognize that this dastardly king is going to get his just due. We recognize justice will be served and Jehovah will be vindicated. And we say, praise God. Who wants to be under a king like this? Who wants to be a subject to a king like this? I mean, he is captured and dragged away. He'll finally be held accountable. At this point, most of us would be willing to push this scumbag off of the brink of hell into hell itself. I mean, who doesn't want the streets to be cleared of rapists and murderers and pimps and pushers and prostitutes? We want the streets clear to folks like that. We want Saddam Hussein's and Osama bin Laden's to meet the wrath of God. And when you look at the crimes that are listed against Manasseh, we think surely he's going to get his justice. But then the unthinkable happens. Then the unimaginable happens. Then the unforeseen happens. And I can't explain it to you. We're not sure where it happened or how it happened, but it happened. In my mind, I picture Manasseh haunted by all he's done. He's in a Syrian dungeon somewhere. I picture him hearing, seeing, and smelling. He hears the screams of all the people whose lives are being taken at his command. He sees the eyes of his sons that he's betrayed and offered to sacrifice us. He smells the stench of flesh burning. Kids, the innocence at his hand. And we're not sure how it happened. If that's how it happened, that's my imagination. But I can tell you it did happen. Because if you look at Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 12, it says, And when he was in distress, the Hebrew word for there, he was agitated. He's like your washing machine that agitated, goes round and round and round. He's distressed on the inside. He can stand it no longer. He smells, he sees, he tastes, he, he hears all that he has done. He entreats the only person that he can turn to. He has no one to turn to and nowhere to go, so Manasseh entreats the Lord his God. And Manasseh humbles himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, let's stop right there. What Manasseh has done, to use a New Testament term, is repent. He's just repented. And I think, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You sacrificed your own sons. You made sure the babies died. You took the lives of innocents. And surely God is not going to let you into his heaven. Surely you're going to repent, but it's not going to be real. It's a political ploy. You've got your neck in the noose and you're really begging for mercy right now because you don't want to die. You're just a scumbag. Surely God's not going to let you into your heaven and put my kids into a house next to you. 
He pleads for mercy. And God gives him grace. What do I mean by that? Verse 13, he prayed to God. God was moved by his entreaty. He heard his supplication. And I've underlined the next phrase in my Bible. And brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. What? What what, what did God do? God broke him out of a foreign jail, brought him back to his palace in Jerusalem, and let him reign as king. (laughs) What? God broke him out of jail, brought him to Jerusalem, put his sapphire slippers, his crown, and his scepter in his hand, and made him king again. (laughs) It's a good thing God didn't consult me first. What about you? What about you? He repents, and God puts him back on the throne. That's like taking Adolf Hitler out of a German bunker and making him Chancellor of Germany again. It's like taking Osama bin Laden out of the grave before 911, or, or taking him from Afghanistan, wherever he was, before 911, and saying, We need you to be the security guard of the Twin Towers in New York City. He takes this guy and puts him back in his king. Puts him back on his throne. Now, I don't know about you, but I scratch my head, and I'm thinking, this must be a slick political ploy. It must be a cynical plot. He just has his neck in the news. But you know what's amazing? He, he gave shoe leather to his new faith. If you look at verse 15, it says in Second Chronicles 33, he removed the foreign gods, the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as the altars that he built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he threw all this stuff outside the city. He set up an altar unto the Lord, and he sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings and ordered all of Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Not only did he repent, but he too brought revival back to the land. He got rid of all the idols, got rid of all the bad stuff, got rid of everything he had set up, and he said, we are going to repent and call upon God. Wow. If God had allowed Manasseh to just die in a dungeon in Assyria, that would have been mercy. Just spared his life and let him die there. If God would have allowed Manasseh to come back to Judah and just be a lonely shepherd on the hills, that's mercy. If God would have allowed Manasseh to come back and just walk the streets of Jerusalem and maybe sweep them, that's mercy. If God would have brought him back to the palace and just let him look at those hallways again and the banquet room again and celebrate a meal there, that would have been mercy. But that's not what God did. God not only extended mercy to Manasseh, he lavished him with his grace. And he said, you will come home and you will not only return to Judah and to Jerusalem, and the palace, but you'll be the king. You'll not only receive mercy from me, but I'm going to lavish you in my grace. And we cry out, where's the justice? 
we cry out, what about the grieving widow? We cry out, what about the children whose lives were taken? We cry out, what about the bold, clear-eyed prophets whose blood ran through the gutters of Jerusalem? What about the, 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 the widows who now must care for themselves and the grieving parents and the abandoned orphans? Don't they have a vote in this? Was it right for Manasseh to get an early parole? What, was it just for him to live out his days on the throne in the palace? It, it seems to me that God should have required great restitution. And let me let you in on something. God did require great restitution. God required a price so high that Manasseh could not pay. You see, when he set up this idol of Molech where the children were sacrificed, the oxen had the human body, he did it in the valley of Ben-Hemon. It's just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Fast forward a few centuries. Outside the gates of Jerusalem, in another valley, on a hill on the other side of that valley, is another innocent son who's been abandoned by his father. On that hill is another son who cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On that other hillside, is a son who writhed and died with hardened people looking upon him, mocking and jeering him. Upon that hill was another son who was sacrificed not to appease the bloodlust of a demon god, but to pay the price of man's reconciliation. The difference is this son went willingly. This son went to pay a price that no one could pay. Manasseh had a tab based on the crimes he had done that was so long that he could never repay. And so do you, and so do you, so do you, and so do I. We may not have sacrificed kids, and we may not have set up idols to worship in Temple Bible Church, but the scriptures say we were dead in our trespasses, We were blind to who God was. We were yet children of wrath. We were like Manasseh, separated from God with a tab we could not pay. So God, being rich in his mercy, sent his son to pay the tab, we call it redemption, so we could live. God's grace is overwhelming. As I study the life of Manasseh, I see God just didn't extend to him mercy, but he gave to him grace. When God forgives us of our sins, he extends to us mercy, but it doesn't stop there. He says, not only have I forgiven you of your sins, that's mercy, but here's some grace. I'm going to adopt you as my son and my daughter. And not only is he just in mercy and the forgiveness of sins, but he's also saying, I'm going to establish for you an eternal home. I'm building it for you right now. That's grace. 
And not only are your sins forgiven, but, but I, 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 and I've adopted you, I'm building a home for you, but in the meantime, I am going to place the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, inside of you. That is grace upon grace upon grace. And God has lavished us. He's lavished us with his grace. You see, first time I read Manasseh's story, I shook my head and thought, wow. I hope I end up next to him in heaven. But then I realized I'm no different than he is. And you'll be next to me. And I'll be next to you. Enjoying eternity together. Because none of us could pay. None of us could pay the debt that we owed. How do you apply this? Two ways. Some of you need to experience the grace of Christ for the first time. You've been trying to work for your salvation, buy your salvation, earn your salvation. You tried to be good enough. God says you can't be good enough. It's not going to happen. That's why I give grace to you. Leith Anderson, a pastor, author, says this, the grace of God is outrageous by normal human reason. It doesn't make sense. There's no adequate reason for God to love us as much as he does. How can you begin to explain sacrificing your son for someone else? Not only does God's grace save us from our sins, but it also, he also welcomes us into his family as adopted children. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. So some of you, for the first time, need to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. Many of us know him as Savior. Do you understand his grace? You're saved by grace, you live by grace, you walk by grace, and you praise him for grace. We're going to sing a song in a second. Your grace still amazes me. It's still a mystery. And as we sing that song, I pray it's our testimony of worship to a Savior who's extended grace to us that we could never repay. As the worship team sings, and we'll join them after they sing the first verse, Bev and I would love to pray with you. We'll be in the back. You've got a need this morning we want to pray with. We want to pray over you. You need to come to know Christ. You want to receive Christ the first time. We'll pray that for you. You just need to thank him for grace. Just just honor him, praise him, praise him in your seat. Come down here if you desire, get on your knees. Just honor and praise him for the grace he's extended to each of us. God's grace is both undeserved and amazing. Father, as we look at this man's life, we are moved and astonished at your grace. So undeserved and yet so amazing. And so, Father, we're grateful, grateful for the price that was paid, the offer that's extended, the grace received. And so our testimony to you, our desire is that you, in all your majesty, would receive our worship, that you would be honored, that you would be lifted up. Devin, I would be in the back, make your way back there, pray with us. You want to come get on your knees, unburden yourself up here, you do that. But let's sing of his grace, his majesty.